السلام علیکم ورحمۃ اللہ وبرکاتہ پیس اینڈ بلیسنگ آف اللہ بی اپان یو آل ویلکم ونس اگین ہیئر ان ڈرائیو ٹائم شو یو لسننگ ٹو وائس آف اسلام اینڈ مائی سیلف از انیک الرحمٰن اینڈ آف جوائن بائی انادر کو پرزینٹ ہے ہی ان دا اسٹوڈیو ڈاکٹر طارق باجواہ از ود می السلام علیکم پیس بی اپان یو وعلیکم السلام پیس بی آن یو اینڈ آل آر لسنرس آئی ہوپ یو the heat which we are going to talk about today because uh, it's pretty hot today and yeah. uh, uh, oh, in a way it's uh, pleasant so far but we don't know where it's going to end up you know it was, it was morning uh, 10, 10 11 o'clock I entered the car I thought it would be cold it was very hot some, for some reason mm-hmm. and I, uh, indeed it was uh, a very hot day today and we'll be discussing uh, a very important topic uh, which you know Dr. Tariq Bhav just mentioned we'll be discussing heat waves is this normal? or is a new normal and we will be discussing in depth and we will be having some guests who will be speaking on this particular topic this is what kind of climate change we are facing and what are the reasons behind it you know over the past few years we have witnessed an alarming increase in the frequency intensity and duration of heat waves impacting you know communities on a global scale and heat waves are extreme weather events characterized by extended periods of abnormally high temperatures compared to the local historical average and these heat waves are you know becoming more frequent and intense due to anthropogenic climate change caused by human activities primarily the burning of fossil fuels and deforestation this july 2023 saw extreme heat waves in several parts of northern you know hemisphere including the southwest of US and Mexico southern Europe and China UN scientist you know said in July 2023 is virtually certain to be hottest month ever recorded on the planet with some expert believes July was the hottest in the last 120 years you know something uh difference happening uh, on the surface of earth so the temperature exceeded 25 celsius on the 16th of july in death valley in the us as well as the northwest china and europe the hottest day in you know <coughs> catalonia was recorded and highest ever records of daily minimum temperature were broken in the other parts of spain i've been myself there normally it's hot anyway but if it's you know as a minimum temperature was broken definitely must have been a lot more hotter than before during july 23 wildfire promoted uh, the evacuation of hundreds of residents and tourists from the from three greek islands unoros avia and corfo fires also caused several dozen casualties in algeria in the us parts of nevada colorado and new mexico tied their all time high parts of arizona you know cayman island highest ever at night time temperature is uh, phoenix arizona which also had its record for longest time without you know failing below uh, 32 celsius so hot and dry conditions were also behind an early and intense wildfire season in canada where more than 120000 people were forced to flee their their homes Um, um imam anik we have our first guest today uh she's a professor christy abby and uh, she is a honorary doctor umea university professor center for health and the global environment 
um, Change University of Washington. We welcome her to our show today. Uh, welcome, uh, Professor Christie. Uh, good afternoon. Good afternoon, and thank you for covering this important story. Uh, yeah, I think it's very, very important that, you know, currently we uh, we are all in a phase which we are likely to suffer in future, and we have to do, at least speak about it. So that's why uh, it's a pleasure to see you on our show today. As a scientist and practitioner, what do you believe is the most critical message for policymakers and the general public regarding the urgency of addressing heat waves and climate change? The first message is how important it is for people to understand that heat is a health risk. Mm -hmm. We all have experienced warmer temperatures, but the very extreme temperatures that are being experienced right now can be deadly. And nearly all of those deaths are preventable. There's lots of actions that individuals, families, communities can take to protect people today. And in to a warmer future, we need to both be very intentional about investments in heat wave early warning systems, into heat action plans, and into reducing our greenhouse gas emissions. Okay, so looking ahead, what gaps do you see in our understanding of the health risks of heat waves, and what areas of research need further exploration? There's a broad understanding of people who are at particular risk. Mm -hmm. We know that adults over the age of 65, yep. people who have chronic medical conditions, diabetes, for example, outdoor workers, pregnant women, there's a long list of groups that are at particular risk. There are critical research gaps in understanding what other groups are at risk, and in understanding how best to communicate that people do need to take action to protect themselves when the temperatures are so high. That we have a series of messages that are being used in different places around the world, and we need to test those to make sure that when we give public messages that people do take action and then can protect themselves from deadly heat. Right. So um, are there any successful examples of adaptation policies and measures from different countries that have effectively reduced health risks during heat waves? Heat wave early warning and response systems save lives. And these are relatively complicated but not difficult systems. They involve all aspects of services available in a community level, for example. Everything from making sure that the fire department, the police department, the emergency services are prepared for having an increase in the number of people who need to go to hospital, who some, fortunately some of them will die. Mm -hmm. We also need to have on board people who take care of elderly citizens, whether they be in some kind of facility, whether it goes to people's houses, you get the idea that there's lots of ways that the cities can organize around heat to make sure that people understand what needs to be done and have the motivation to take action and have access to the resources that they need. If they need to go to a cooling shelter, for example, how do they get there? 
Are there free buses? Are there ways that people can get to cooling shelters? And so looking at how these can work together to be most effective. In the United States, we have several cities now that have named heat officers. And these people have the specific job of making sure that all of the city services, all of the other kinds of services you have within a city, trusted voices for communities that are marginalized, for example, and make sure that they all work together to protect people during a heat wave and make sure that they know what they can do even without access to air conditioning. Mm-hmm. Uh, of course, you know, th- those uh, countries uh, who have the resources and they can manage in, in, in such conditions, but what about the countries where, you know, they are already living, like, on the borderline and they don't have those that many resources? What would be your suggestion or what would be your generally advice to the individuals and communities on protecting themselves during heat waves and how can we foster resilience in the face of this growing challenge? There are lots of actions that individuals and communities can take in low-resource settings. You don't need air conditioning. People, if you have access to an electric fan, sitting in front of a fan and spraying a bit of water on your skin as that water evaporates really cools down your body temperature. Mm -hmm. Using ice packs around your neck, putting your feet in cool water. There's lots of ways that people can cool down and make sure that they keep their body temperature within a normal range. There is a very nice infographic about this on the Lancet website. There were two papers on heat and health. So if you look for Lancet heat and health, when you get to the landing page partway down on the right, you can see these infographics explaining how to keep cool. And those infographics are available at the moment in English, Spanish, and Hindi, and hopefully will be translated into other languages as well so that they can be accessible in low-resource settings. Uh, right, that's great. Um, yeah, of course. I mean, it's, uh, there are there are many things which can be which can be done, and and the first and the foremost is, you know, making people aware of these heat wave, heat waves, and that they have the basic knowledge that this is something which is serious, and they have to take it serious. Thank you very much for joining us on uh, Radio Voice of Islam today, Professor Christie. Uh, thank you very much, and have a nice evening. Thank you so much. So that was uh, Professor Christy Abbey. She is a professor at uh, the Center for Health and the Global Environment, University of Washington. And she was speaking about what measures we can take, which can help us to get out of the crisis which is created by these heat waves. Um, because as uh, Imam Anik, uh, my presenter, was earlier presenting the statistics, and you know, According to the Canadian Interagency Forest Fire Center, more than 1.1 million hectares have been burnt compared to the 10-year average of about 800,000 acres in the recent years. So the latest analysis published by the World Weather Attribution Group found that the heat waves in North America and Europe were virtually impossible without climate change. It also found that the heat wave in China was 50 times more likely to occur in our current warmer world. 
all three heat waves were hotter than they would have been without the boost from the global warming. Last year was the hottest in the UK since 1884, when Met Office records began. It was also the hottest on the Central England temperature record that stretches back to 1659. So this year has been uh, wildfires uh, in several European countries amid scorching heat waves with temperatures over 47 degrees Celsius, although the United Kingdom has endured a notably wet July and August so far. So this is, uh, you know, you, you are observing, if you are in the United Kingdom, you can see the temperature rising gradually and you can feel that you have more of the sun available and particularly it's a good news for those who are lacking vitamin D that they can expose their skin and make some vitamin D, but at the same time, they have to protect their skins so that they are not vulnerable, particularly the fair-skinned people, to the cancer which it brings. And also, you have to apply some creams as a barrier so that you are protected. As regards the Islamic point of view, um, Islamic uh, guidance regarding all, you know, Islam guides on all social, economical, political, cultural, and other substantial issues of life, and Islam has prohibited the wastage of all natural resources and their excessive consumption. Allah the Almighty states in the Holy Quran, eat and drink, but exceed not the bounds. Surely he does not love those who exceed the bounds. That's from chapter 7, verse 32. And the holy prophet of Islam, Prophet Muhammad, may peace and blessings of Allah be upon him. He said that the world is sweet and green, and verily, Allah has appointed you as a representative and trustee over it. So this is a tradition taken from uh, a book uh, of uh, traditions, Muslim. Allah the Almighty instructs us to not focus on extravagance and to share the benefit of everything that he has bestowed upon man. And he it is who brings into being gardens, trellised and untrellised, and the date palm, and the cornfields whose fruits are of diverse kinds, and the olives and the pomegranate alike and unalike. Eat of the fruit of each when it bears fruit, but pay his due on the day of harvest, and exceed not the bounds. Surely Allah loves not those who exceed the bounds. That is the teaching from the Holy Quran, chapter 6, verse 142. The Holy Prophet of Islam, Prophet Muhammad, may peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, encouraged recycling and conservation of energy. Once a sheep died, and the Messenger of Allah, may peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, said to, his, to its owners, Why don't you remove its skin, then tan it, so you can have something useful out of it? That has been quoted in um, a book uh, called At-Tirmazi, Book of Traditions. On another occasion, the Holy Prophet of Islam, Prophet Muhammad, may peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, said that, turn off the lamps if you want to lie down. Close your doors, tie the mouths of your water skins, and cover the food and drink. Such a nice advice from him. So how does a heat wave affect the human body? We will um, go into the details, uh, but first we have yes. another <clears throat> guest. Yes, we have another guest uh, with us, Aidan Sharon, uh, who is, uh, you know, 
coordinator of nplastic at earthday.org we welcome him in the show assalamu alaikum peace be upon you and thank you very much for joining us today hey how are you yeah, i'm fine thank you very much for joining uh aiden uh to start off you know as heat waves become more frequent and intense uh i would like to ask what specific initiatives or projects has you know earthday.org undertaken to raise awareness and you know to tackle this issue yeah so one of our largest programs is our climate education program which focuses on educating people globally on the effects of climate change one of those being an increase in heat waves uh we also do our canopy project which is our reforestation efforts globally those don't you know contribute too much globally but they do help keep temperatures down in communities and planting trees does help in a significant way for those communities and reducing local temperatures. Mm-hmm. So how how does earthday.org approach the issue of heat waves in the you know context of border climate change and you know environmental s- sustainability? So we try to stay active in all global negotiations regarding climate which is the top 28 the climate conferences that are held every year and we promote climate education at all these events. If people aren't aware of the issue of climate change and how they relate to heat waves, they're not going to know that they can make a difference by signing on to different things or just, you know, educating their local local governments and the people around them to push them to do more for the climate. Mhm. And you know the heat waves you know, often disproportionately affect certain regions and communities. How does your organization ensure that its efforts are inclusive and equitable in reaching those most impacted by extreme heat events. So Earth Day is global. We're, we're based out of the US, but we do have offices all over the world and we mm-hmm. try to get as much you know advice and try to work with communities as much as we can to hear what the biggest issues with climate are to them and then we use that to influence governments can go and talk to governments and local governments in those areas and push them to do more for their local communities. And what resources and support does your organize provide to individuals and communities to help them adapt and prepare for more frequent heat waves? Uh if you go to earthday.org we have a whole list of different blog posts and different advice and toolkits on how you can stay safe during heat waves. Uh as well as signing on to our different petitions and things that work to push governments both globally and locally to do more about climate change which directly affects the frequency and intensity of heat waves. And uh, I think uh, one thing that is very important how, what role do you see for international collaboration and cooperation in tackling the health risk of heat waves and climate change on a global scale? It is completely necessary for global governments and global interaction to come to work on the issue of heat waves and climate change. Um if one country does as much as possible, you still have all the other countries that need to kind of do their part as well. Um particularly here in the US, we're a huge emitter of carbon emissions and we need to do more. So, we need to work with other countries on our legislation as well as curbing our emissions. Mm-hmm. Yeah, thank you very much uh, Aiden for joining us today and giving us insight and uh, you know the, the awareness is awareness of earthday.org hopefully uh, you know the work you've been doing i think everybody needs to adopt this kind of work and uh, you know take part into these things because everything we, we need to change the climate change has to be together isn't it uh, n- not only one uh, you know company or you know a person can do it everybody needs all the uh, government needs to work together 
to to bring uh, you know a positive climate change and thank you all for joining us today it was a pleasure speaking with you thank you so much for having me on yeah thank you very much so that was uh, Aiden Sharon he was he's uh, anaplastics coordinator at earthday.org and he was speaking about what sort of policies can help us during this particular um, heat waves which are we are we are going to come across so how does uh, a heat wave affect the human body talking about the physiology of the body the systems how they work and how the heat wave affects them because uh, if we understand that maybe that we can protect ourselves in a better way the systems in the human body that enable it to adapt to heat become overwhelmed when a person is exposed to heat for a very long time the first thing that shuts down is the ability to sweat you know sweat is one of the phenomena one of the protective mechanism um, through which a body can get rid of excessive heat so that's why you know in a, in, a, in a hot weather you you know that you are sweating excessively so this is a, this is a protective mechanism some people don't like that they are they are sweating excessively but this is how your body temperature your thermal regulation takes place in your body as a human being so once a person stops perspiring the body becomes very hot in fact if you stop sweating that's a one sign of dehydration and that is one sign that you are entering a danger zone because the the fluid in your body has uh, been diminished to the extent that you are not able to perspire and um, once you become dry and then the body starts becoming even hotter and eventually that begins to affect the brain and that's when people begin to get confused and they can lose their consciousness even at a later stage so the confusion is one sign of dehydration as well so i uh, i just 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 if you you offer uh, water simple water and if the electrolytes you know the when you are sweating your electrolytes are also lost and uh, when the electrolytes are lost you can add some salt some sugar uh, in the fluid which are offered to these people who come with either a heat stroke or uh, uh, any sort of dehydration symptoms of of the heat excessive when they are exposed to excessive heat this can help and as the body temperature increases very rapidly the central nervous system and the circulatory system they are also um, um impacted and in places where there have been prolonged heat exposure definitely um is the number of uh, hours or the number of hours is the time duration do um you know how long you have been exposed to heat also matters a lot so there's probably a broad impact on many organ systems if you are exposed for a longer period um so if you, if you are out in a very short period and then come back then it do you do not suffer from that many um uh, illnesses or ailments or suffering from the of the various systems of the body but if it is a constant exposure of course you are going to you are very likely to to suffer from that so this is this is uh, this is what is the impact of um of the heat waves uh, when you when you have that also 
when you're suffering um, from these uh, type of uh, phenomena, there are certain things and certain from which you can find out um, that you have suffered from a heat stroke. Um, like you, you, you get a heat rash, you get muscle cramps, your body temperature can increase ri- rapidly and can go to very, very high levels where, you know, and, and if you have very high temperature, you have a risk of getting fits or um, um, uh, when, when your body starts shaking rapidly and, uh, and then the, 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 so some people, they are, they are very confused what to do at that particular time. So the cramping of muscles, of course, is a late sign. Heat waves are um, amongst the deadliest natural hazards with thousands of people dying from heat-related causes each year. However, the full impact of a heat wave is rarely known until weeks or months afterwards. Once death certificates are collected or scientists can analyze excess deaths, many places they lack good record keeping of heat-related deaths and therefore currently available global mortality figures are likely to be an underestimate. So in line with what has been expected from past climate projection and IPCC reports, these events are not rare anymore today. North America, Europe, and China, and we are talking about these developed countries, they have experienced heat waves increasingly frequently over the last years as a result of warming caused by human activities. Hence, the current heat waves are not rare in today's climate. Uh, with an event like the currently expected approximately once every 15 years in the U.S.-Mexico region, once every 10 years in southern Europe, and once in five years of China. Uh, I understand we have uh, our next guest as well, so Imam Nick, can you introduce him? We have our (coughs) next guest, Hannah Madison. Uh, She's a science engagement manager at Royal Mythological Society. I welcome on the show. Assalamu alaikum, peace be upon you, and thank you very much for joining us today. Hi, thanks so much for having me. Uh, to start off, uh, Hannah, what does the latest research from the Royal uh, Meteorological Society indicate about the relationship between climate change and the increasing frequency of heat waves? So um, the science is clear. Um, mm. We are confident, essentially, that climate change is increasing the frequency, duration, and the intensity of heat waves around the world. Um, And the reason why we are so confident about this is because if you are to think about all the temperatures that you experience um, throughout the year in one place, um, you can essentially map them out so that you're um, looking at the number of times you um, experience like 20 degrees, uh, you experience your average temperature a lot more than your extremes. And together they look a bit like the shape of a, a church bell. That's how we describe it. And so in, your, in the middle you have your average temperature and at the ends you have your extremes. And as you warm um, the earth, which we have done by burning fossil fuels, um, you shift that whole um, curve upwards and as the average temperature moves up, your extremes also change. So you experience less extreme cold events and you experience more extreme heat events. And they're also hotter when they are extreme. Um, so that's why we are so confident about um, the increasing frequency, duration and intensity of heat waves uh, due to human-induced climate change. So, you know, as, as you're mentioning, the heat waves now become more common. So what are the you know, potential impacts on human health and environment? And um, So actually, there's 
significant and far-reaching impacts um, on, on both human health and the environment, uh, which I think we have all kind of seen play out very sadly um, in the last few weeks around the world. So we know that um, we see a rise in heat-related illnesses, so things like heat exhaustion, heat stroke, dehydration, um, and there's a particular group of people, uh, vulnerable groups, such as older people, young people, those with long-term medical conditions that um, are particularly vulnerable to those effects um, of hot weather. And sadly, we can see an increase in mortality rates. So um, we know that temperatures in excess of 25 degrees C in the UK are associated with excess heat-related deaths. Um, there are also impacts on air quality. Often when we have long, sunny days during heat waves, that um, helps produce ozone, which can be um, bad for people with respiratory issues, especially things like asthma. And then if we're thinking about kind of the environment impacts, um, reduced water availability uh, due to kind of the increased evaporation, along with those high temperatures during a heat wave, often increase the risk of wildfires. And there's, there's I mean, there's devastating impacts from wildfires, as I'm sure we all know. Um, and then there are consequences for uh, the melting of uh, glaciers and ice sheets around the world heat waves often kind of accelerate that melting of those mm. um, and then yeah social impacts too from all of that the impact on energy on transportation um, and also on water resources for things like agriculture so there's lots and lots of impacts from heat waves uh, indeed I think I uh, hope our you know the listeners are listening to you as well I think the impact you have mentioned is a lot and uh, we have to take proper measure uh, to tackle this. To, you know, yes. to, to move on, uh, you know, are there any uh, technological advancement or innovations that can help us better predict and uh, you know monitor heat waves in the future? Yeah, so we are, or scientists, we are continually researching and improving uh, the advanced weather models that we use um, to predict heat waves mm -hmm. um, and those models are being fed by observations from around the world like satellites radars weather stations again we're investing in those all the time um but i think the most exciting thing really at the moment that's ongoing that could help us better predict heat waves is the use of machine learning and ai so that is currently being used in research um to kind of look back at historical heat wave data and see if there are any patterns in there that um we can identify that will then help us predict future heat waves. Um, amazing, I think. Uh, to moving on uh, to another question, I have, you know, the difference between heat wave and prolonged period of hot weather. You know, how, how do they affect our understanding of climate trends? And what is the difference between both of them? Yeah, so um, there's a subtle difference between the two. So a heat wave is essentially a period of um, excessively hot weather so the temperatures that you experience uh, during a heat wave are extreme um, and it's important to say that the definition of a heat wave is different for every country so every country will kind of specify their own sort of conditions in the UK um, we consider a heat wave to be when we have at least three days in a row that meet uh, the temperatures of 25 to 28 degrees C depending on the county you live in. So down south, it's 28 degrees, up north, it's 25. Um, so yeah, heat wave is extreme temperatures, whereas a prolonged period of hot weather is um, essentially a longer duration of warmer temperatures, so warmer than average, but they're not that extreme temperature. So they're not hitting that kind of 
threshold to be considered a heat wave. And I think both of these things, both heat waves and prolonged periods of hot weather, they're important indicators of climate change. So if you or if we're seeing an increase in the frequency, intensity and duration of both of those things, which we are, um, then that is telling us that the Earth's average temperature is increasing and the kind of extremes of our climate system are changing. So if we discuss particularly, you know, UK, uh, what kind of predictions are there and what kind of effect happens when there's a continuously, you know, the heat waves or the continued hot weather within the UK? Normally we see there's raining all the time. And sometimes we see there's uh, if there's a continuous heat wave or you know the hot weather, it it becomes you know that some things are in the news. Would you like to share something on that? Uh, what about whether we're going to see a heat wave um, in no, the next few weeks? None of them. The prediction, um, well, you know, the, after the heat waves, of course, you know, it, it leaves the impact on the country, right? Yeah. And it's particularly if we discuss the UK, what kind of you know impact we see uh, within the UK? Would you, would you um, want to say anything on this or? Yes, and um, so we often, uh, whenever we experience a heat wave in the UK, I think we are often, um, we struggle in terms of our infrastructure. Um, I know that uh, whenever there's heat waves here, there's rail delays because the, the way that our railways are built, they're mm. uh, essentially built to withstand a certain temperature range. And obviously heat waves are slightly outside that upper temperature limit. Um, so we have uh, lines buckling, um, there are impacts on roads, tarmac uh, melts. Um, we have all of the health impacts that I mentioned earlier, heat stroke, mm. uh, dehydration. Uh, and also critically in the UK, I think our buildings are built to keep heat in mm. um, and not keep heat out. And that True. is a crucial thing that we do need to address with climate change. Very much right, I think. Uh, you know, uh, what are some of the key messages that the Royal Meteorological Society aims to communicate uh, to the public regarding the reality of heat waves uh, becoming the new normal? So I think a key thing uh, which I started with is that heat waves are intensifying uh, and they are occurring more frequently due to human-induced climate change. Um, what we currently consider to be extreme heat will become more commonplace in the future and it will no longer be considered the extreme. It will be more normal to cool. Mm. Um, that will pose serious health risks and really the key thing we all need to do is take immediate action to reduce those risks now and the best way that we can do that is to focus on reducing our carbon footprint both on a personal level but also uh, to encourage it at a national and international level. Um, every single action matters and so if anyone you know wants to know more information on what they could do to help reduce their carbon footprint or learn more about heat waves and what we've discussed today then um, we have more information on our website um, Um yeah. Um, thank you very much uh, it was a pleasure speaking with you thank you for joining and I hope our listeners have benefited uh, from your uh, you know talk and the giving you know the information and the making us, I think everybody needs to understand more about heaves yeah. and how we can, uh, you know, how what kind of impact it's bringing. Uh, thank you very much for joining us. It was a pleasure speaking with you. Thank you so much for having me. Uh, thank you. Bye. So that was Hannah Mallinson. She uh, the Science Engagement Manager at Royal Meteorological Society. And she was uh, speaking about the impact we have of the heat waves, uh, particularly in the United Kingdom and generally um, all over the world, it's a global impact, and we need to be more aware of the 
impact or the damage it can it can cause to a human body so so we are more um, cautious about it and as as we just heard that there are warnings by the meteorological society and the met office is always warning about these heat waves it's very very interesting and one thing she mentioned is that every country has their own criteria of mm. uh, the definition of of a heat wave and i remember going for a holiday um uh, i think it's uh, um it was a summer month but but it was like a end of winter and uh, it was in egypt and and we went there enjoying the sun and the temperature was like around 23 to 26 mm. and and i saw people wearing sweaters and coats and mm. and i saw um, and i was just uh, you know we we were enjoying that that look uh, you know we are here to enjoy the heat and these people they are you know feeling, feeling cold, cold yeah. in that weather so it is very very relative that where you are and there are there are places where the normal heat can be like you know i have i've seen in a desert in the in thar desert i've seen the temperatures of 53 degrees celsius as considered as a normal summer temperature and where you know you can't find water you you don't have any resources how you cool cool yourself down and in in such temperatures people are living like a normal life and they have to walk for miles just to get a piece you know a small um bowl of water or a pitcher of water they are carrying so um it varies from place to place but everywhere generally it has been noticed that the the climate change has affected and the world and and there is a uh, more and more heat waves are coming to all the countries of the world and this results in melting of the um the snow which we have uh, you know on the on the extremes of the Bless of you. the earth and yeah. and and it is it is has an impact and generally we have to be aware and be prepared not only to uh, you know to protect ourselves but also to prevent it happening we have to raise our voice for the uh, some things which are uh, recommended to be done by all countries that they enter into this uh, stage where they are doing something to protect our uh, climate uh, so they are all aware of the climate change but uh, the, you know the, the the fossil fuels which are uh, you know which are burning although there are some changes in some countries they have been brought like uh, um, you know bringing in the electrical uh, electric vehicles um so so that they can save some of the fuels burning uh, and and a lot more can be done about it and of course more and more countries they they need to get involved and that is uh, that is that is what is uh, one thing we are doing is to making people more aware of the climate change and what they should be doing and uh, even a very simple thing you know you if you are recycling your garbage um that is one simple thing which can help uh to to protect if you are planting a tree if you are not cutting a tree now the, these simple things on individual levels they have a big impact on a, as a as a whole on the society where we we see and we notice that uh, hundreds and thousands of trees are being burnt by the wildfires which have been initiated by this climate change and the heat waves we have So in the region uh, region uh, heat wave of the same likelihood as the one observed today would have been significantly cooler in a world without climate change and similar to previous studies we have found that the heat waves defined um, you know that uh, uh, we, we just heard the definition that it is a constant continuous 3 days heat waves where the temperatures are between 23 and 26 
these temperatures um, or above that. So to, there, there is a margin, of course, defined that it could be 2.5 uh, Celsius warmer in southern Europe, 2, 2 degrees Celsius warmer in North America, about 1 degree Celsius in China in today's climate than that which would have been if it was not for human-induced climate change. So we do have our next guest, uh, who is uh, Adeline Siffert, and she is a senior humanitarian policy advisor at the British uh, Red Cross. We welcome her to our, our sh show on uh, Radio Voice of Islam. Uh, this is a live show where we are, we are talking to our guests, our experts in this particular field. And the topic today we have is this, is this a new norm, the heat waves which are we getting? So welcome, Adeline, uh, to our show um, this afternoon. Hi, good afternoon. Thank you. Um, Adeline, so my first question to you, um, uh, in, you know, in relation to our topic today, uh, is in the face of climate change, what proactive measures is the British Red Cross advocating for to address the root causes of heat waves and their impacts on communities? Yes, great. Thank you. So to address the root causes of heat waves, of course, we need mitigation. So that means we need continued effort to re reduce greenhouse gas emission in the UK to prevent even worse humanitarian impacts. Uh, but what we focus on more at the British Red Cross on that we need uh, continued effort in parallel is adaptation, uh, which has been insufficient to date. Uh, so we need adaptation to heat waves. Uh, uh, they are happening now. I think you've covered that in the show already. They're more frequent, extreme and last longer. Uh, we've seen that in the UK, the average length is, has more than doubled in the last decade uh, for heat waves. We focus on the most vulnerable people and communities in our work and specifically on how heat waves impact them. We have a range of advice on our website before uh, on what people can do before and during a heat wave. Uh, we have developed a checklist in eight languages, which includes first aid, but also how to keep home school. Uh, and we've developed polling research two years ago, focusing on people's perceptions of heat waves. And we've decided to re repeat this polling this year. Uh, our report will be published tomorrow. Uh, but we basically decided to repeat that polling because last year in 2022, we saw unprecedented heat in the UK with a certain part of the country reaching 40 degrees and the UK declaring a state of national emergency due to high temperatures for the first time. Uh, so that report that we'll be launching tomorrow shows that more people are aware, generally speaking, of heat waves as a risk, though there's still quite a lot of people who don't think that it's a problem now. So that's something that we're looking to address. Uh, what are the, some of the key challenges faced by the British Red Cross when dealing with heat waves and how do you work to overcome them? Yeah, so operationally, it's a bit of a new area for us. So last year was the first time that we formally responded to extreme heat in the UK. Mm -hmm. uh, and we've largely focused on response. So that includes emotional support, practical support, including distribution of water, uh, advice and signposting. We've also developed a UK climate adaptation program to enable our crisis emergency and response services to become climate ready. So we know that uh, heat waves and other extreme weather events have an impact on our services. And we've noticed already an increase on the demand for such services. So we need to figure out what that means for our capacities now and in the future, which we're in the process of doing. Um, we've also worked with the London School of Economics last year uh, to try and look at England's experience and response to the extreme heat that we've seen. And one thing that came out was that first responders were overstretched uh, 
in terms of their capacities to respond to heat waves. And if the heat waves would have lasted longer, that would have jeopardized their capacity to respond. So that's something we at the British Red Cross and other responders and organizations in the UK really need to think about. Um, right. Generally, we were talking about that, you know, the houses which are built in, particularly in the UK, they are to conserve heat rather than, you know, uh, uh, they are open to, you know, the, the, to get used to the hot climates. And particularly, you know, when you see you are traveling in underground, you are traveling in the trains, buses, they are uh, more adapted to the to the cold weather rather than the heat weather, the hot weather. So um, is there any changes being brought in? or just just to to help in these particular heat waves yes no that's a very good point and um, for example in other countries in europe uh, or in france where i'm from for example all houses are set up with shutters for example that uk houses don't have so your point about the fact that we're not set up for heat in the uk generally speaking is is very true um, so we're not building experts at the British Red Cross, but from the work we've done with communities and the polling research that we've done, uh, what we've learned is that people, generally speaking, aren't clear on what the best ways are to keep their homes cool during a heat wave. And second, we know that they struggle also to adapt their homes for uh, heat uh, going forward. So um, both of these um, findings that we've had indicate that we need more actions, uh, both on preparedness so that people can deal with heat waves when they happen, but also thinking about adapting houses in the more uh, in the longer term. Uh, there's various ways to do that. We're not the experts to provide that uh, advice, though we have insight into who is most vulnerable and who really needs that support uh, to adapt their homes and prevent uh, extreme health impacts from um, heat waves. One other point that came out is just that generally speaking there's not enough access to green and cool public spaces especially in urban areas like you've mentioned where people really need such places to try and get a respite from uh, heat um, that is increased in urban areas so so leading from that uh, you know the question is uh, that how does the british british red cross collaborate with the other organizations and government agencies to enhance preparedness and response efforts during heat waves yeah. So at the British Red Cross, we are auxiliary to the UK government, so we have a role in emergency response as category, category one, two responders. Mm -hmm. uh, but we also work closely with the voluntary and community sector. Uh, one example of that work is, for example, we is they've developed um, the voluntary community sector emergencies partnership, developed a tool that's called Climate Just, which is an information tool designed to help with the delivery of equitable responses to climate change at the local level. And we've provided... Uh, support with updating census data, which gives insight into climate disadvantage uh, with communities that we work with. On an operational level, we work very closely with local resilience forums, for example, and in our work on policy, we engage also with various parts of the government, uh, with bits of research that we've done. So I've mentioned the one on, on heat that's published tomorrow. We've already, we've also done some research on flooding and we try to highlight people's experience given we work so closely with them uh, to provide policy recommendations to various uh, parts of the government. Great. I think you're doing a, a good job. Uh, well, generally, you know, just for our listeners, how can they get involved in supporting the Red Cross, uh, Red Cross and Climate Center's efforts to address the impacts of heat waves and climate change on vulnerable communities? Great. So we are a volunteer-based organization, and we have Red Cross and Red Crescent based in all uh, the countries of the world. You've mentioned the Climate Center. That's one of our expert centers that focuses specifically on climate. In the UK, we have emergency response volunteers uh, all across the country who will be the one 
supporting communities during flooding, heat waves or wildfires. So people can look on our websites and see for opportunities close to where they live if they'd like to engage. Uh, we also have community resilience projects. Uh, for example, in Barking in London, we've had one where we um, helped with rehabilitating a nature reserve to provide cool space for people. Um, there's also educational toolkit that people can use. Uh, it's called Weather Together, targeting um, 10 to 16 year olds to teach them how to prepare for and cope with uh, flooding, heat waves, but also eco-anxiety, as we know that it's a, a big issue, especially among younger populations. So all of that information is on our website uh, if people are interested. Thank you very much, Adeline. It is a pleasure talking to you, and I hope that it has been beneficial for all our listeners as well. Thank you for joining us, and have a nice evening. Thank you. Thank you. So that was Adeline Siffert who was talking about, she's from Red Cross, and she was talking about the climate change and what they are doing and what, how they are guiding people to get uh, the least impact of these heat waves. So what is needed is that, you know, it is said that unless the world rapidly stops burning fossil fuels, the events which are the heat waves will become even more common and the world will experience heat waves that are even hotter and longer lasting. A heat wave like the recent ones would occur every two to five years in a world that is two degrees Celsius warmer than the pre-industrial climate. Heat action plans are increasingly being implemented across all three regions and there is evidence that they lead to reduced heat-related mortality. Furthermore, Cities that have urban planning for extreme heat tend to be cooler and reduce, and they reduce the urban heat island effect. There is an urgent need for an accelerated rollout of heat action plans in light of increasing vulnerability driven by the intersecting trends of climate change, population aging, and the urbanization. So in conclusion, what we have been talking today is about the heat waves. Is it a new norm? So the recent heat waves around the world are a clear wake-up call for humanity to take immediate action in addressing climate change. We must work together to reduce greenhouse gas emissions, protect vulnerable populations, and develop resilient infrastructure to cope with extreme weather events. As individuals, we can also make a difference by adopting sustainable practices and raising awareness about the urgency of the climate action. In this regard, Hazrat uh, Mirza Masood Ahmed, who is the head of our worldwide head of the, uh, the Ahmadiyya Muslim community, uh, he has said that where we plant physical trees to beautify and clean the environment and bear fruit, we also plant spiritual trees that yield fruits of love and humanity. Hence, we always seek to treat our neighbors and those around us with compassion, and we endeavor to fulfill their rights in every possible way. This is to learn from the physical things, the spiritual things which matter more to us. On another occasion, he said, uh, His Holiness Hazrat Mirza Masroor Ahmed, the head of the Ahmadiyya Muslim community, he said that today natural disasters are prevalent and there is destruction all around. Storms and hurricanes are occurring in the United States at a greater frequency than before. The economic crisis is worsening Various inhabitations of the world are at a threat of being submerged by water due to global warming. He said that on Friday, 25th, 1st of September, 2012. Long time ago, he has, time and again, he has been reminding people that it is everybody's responsibility that he has to 
take the take the responsibility and take care of the planet which has which we are considered to be the trustees god almighty has given us a blessing this earth and as trustees we have to take care of it otherwise it will not take care of us and we are the ones who are going to suffer so um so we have been talking about the climate change how it is going to impact the world and how particularly we should not only be aware ourselves but also uh, transfer this information to to those who can make the difference and we can make the difference not only individually but also we can raise our voice to the political uh, leaders who can make a difference uh, to change the policies and the policies they do matter so on instagram we asked <clears throat> is global warming causing this summer's heat waves and people have replied on it indeed people have very you know um, they have eye on this particular topic and everybody is discussing this nowadays 94% said yes and six of them said no so global warming is there and as we've discussed it's impacting the you know the face of the earth and we have to work together and you know to bring a positive change and to 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 fight with this climate and i hope you know as uh, uh, the the saying of uh, the 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 khalif of amdi muslim association has mentioned i think these are the ways we have to uh, apply to 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 rectify and to overcome these situations now uh, we'll be ending uh, this today show um, the first hour of the show and we will be back in the next hour and after uh, next hour we'll be discussing another topic please join us after the news break Allahu akbar خلافت and the love which they have in their hearts for khilafat allah the almighty states in the holy quran and he bound the believers heart to one another in affection to the point that they were prepared to sacrifice their blood in place of your sweat o prophet if you had spent all that which is in the earth even then you would not be able to bind their hearts in such a manner but allah has placed mutual affection between them deep love for you Verily, 
He is the mighty, the wise. Khilafat or Khalifat is a Muslim term for spiritual leadership in Islam and word or in the world, you know, it means successor. Before going to discuss this topic, I would like to take our first guest with us who will be discussing this topic and giving us insight and explaining the true importance of, you know, Khalifat in Islam. We'll be having respected Imam Raja Burhan. He is with us and I welcome him in the show. Assalamu alaikum. Thank you very much for joining us today. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuhu. Hello, Anik sir. Can you hear me? I am talking to you, but uh, I can hear you very clearly. Yeah, thank you very much. Uh, respected Imam Bran Sahib is with us. He is my teacher as well, and uh, you know he is the missionary of Ahmadiyya Muslim Association. Uh, thank you very much for joining us today. I would like to ask from you, what can you please tell? What is the importance of Khalifate in Islam? Okay, I think first of all, it is very important to understand that the concept concept of Khilafat or Caliphate is not a new concept. Mm-hmm. It is there in the world even before the advent of Islam or before the advent of the Holy Prophet, peace and blessings of Allah be upon him. It is very important to understand the meaning, one meaning of Caliph or Khalifa is one who comes after the advent of Prophet. When we understand this thing, then it is easy for us to understand that after the advent of the Prophet of Islam, Prophet Muhammad, peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, there was a series of caliphate after Prophet ﷺ, and this continued for around 30 years, and as prophesied by the Prophet of Islam, that in the later days, another Prophet will come, on the footsteps of the Prophet of Islam, Prophet Muhammad, peace and blessings of Allah be upon him. And after him, again, the system of Caliphate. So this is the brief history of Caliphate in Islam. Uh, can you please tell our listeners, how did the rightly guided Caliphs unite Muslims in challenging times? Oh, well, this is a very important topic. Mm-hmm. And history is witness to that. You know, having a prophet like Prophet of Islam, Prophet Muhammad, peace and be on him. Best of all, Prophet, even the companions of peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, never imagine about the day that a day will come when the Prophet of Islam will go. But that thing did happen. So the first thing, the first caliph from a qualifier last is one hand the death after the demise of the Islam, Prophet Muhammad, peace and blessings of Allah be upon him. You know, sitting today after 1400 years ago, um, after 1400 years, it seems very nothing. But you know, the gravity the, the sadness, the trauma of that moment when Prophet of Islam passed away can only be understood when you visualize or try to understand uh, that time and the importance and the status of Prophet Muhammad So the first thing, united Ummah, 
under one hand under Hazrat Abu Bakr and then it continued for a very long time. The second is, you know, this is how Allah Almighty has created this world. Every human being, whether he is a normal human being or a great prophet, he has to depart from this world. And the work of the to continue the work of that prophet. And this is what Sophia Rashtin did. The guideline was given by, by Prophet Muhammad, peace and blessings of Allah be upon him. The rightly guided Khulafa followed that and established, rather, increased the size of the people and also the land. So from the financial aspect, from the number aspect, from the unity aspect, from every aspect, Islam in the history and Khulafa Rashidin increased and flourished. Uh, indeed, uh, you've answered very beautifully how the you know the caliphs after the Holy Prophet peace be upon him, uh, you know, um, you know, united all the ummah. Moving on to you know today day and age, of course, as we know, there's a caliphate in uh, Islam Ahmadiyyat. Why was there was a need of caliphate after the promised Messiah was I think the question should be answered in another way. You know. In the history of religion, and mm-hmm. especially in the history of cited by any common man or any being. In fact, everything is by Allah Almighty Himself. So the first point to remember is, the Prophet of Islam, and blessings of Allah be upon him, himself prophesied that when the Prophet Again, according to the nature of this world, also go away from this world. And after that, a system of that continue, and after that. He didn't say anything, and our understanding is that this system will continue in the last day of this world. So, point mm-hmm. one to understand is, it was something which was prophesied 1400 years ago. And the second is very important to understand is, you know, look at the condition of the world. Look at the people of the world. They agree or agree, but right guidance. And this is the only institution of Islam in Ahmadiyya Muslim community which is guiding not only Ahmad, but the old humanity towards one creator like the words. So whether somebody agrees or doesn't agree with the importance of Khilafat Ahmadiyya a right guidance. Whether in the shape of Google, they would like to search the right answer, or in the shape of any artificial intelligence, they need the right answer. Khilafat Ahmadiyya has that right answer. Uh, very much true. Um, Imam uh, Raja Bransa, what is the relationship between a khalif and its community members? It is a relationship like a father to son, like mm. a father. It is a relationship 
more like a father to son it is relationship of trust it is a relationship of love it is a relationship which gives you satisfaction it is a relationship when a follower meets khalifa his peace in himself you know i must mention this thing a characteristic of a khalifa followers is that khalifa provides satisfaction to his followers this is what ahmadiyya muslim community whether they belong to india pakistan africa north america south america every ahmadi whenever he is khalifa if is khalifa he always finds that satisfaction and our recent jalsa salana which happened only around 10 years ago it was another witness this thing which i am right now stating in front of you so the relationship of khalifa and his people cannot be simply described in simple words it has to be felt it has to be seen and those who are feeling that they are witness to that um very much true uh, at the end uh, is is the ahmadiyya muslim caliphate uh, is the answer to the struggles of muslim ummah uh, today answer is yes hmm. if they follow the khalifa ahmadiyya muslim community so the answer is yes with an if you need to follow the instructions come on you need to follow the uh, the way shown to you that if we are not following that then of course those kind of solutions which we are looking for a problems all around the world i am not talking about only ahmadis or only muslim i am talking about everybody hmm. right now we are facing a very sensitive situation situation in the world right now we are facing problem of migration immigration i know we are facing the problem of shortage of food all these problems are there and the caliph of ahmadiyya muslim community often on he is giving us guidance regarding all matters but the matter of fact is and the need of the time is follow his instructions otherwise his personality his instructions his commandment will be of no use of us so the gist of this conversation is the guidance we have to follow the guidance uh thank you very much um, uh, respected imam raja buran sahab for joining us today and i hope uh, our listeners have benefited from this and understood the importance of khalifat and why you know its importance for muslims and for entire world thank you much for joining us today thank uh, you very nice much evening. for having me on your show jazakallah assalamualaikum so you're listening to the our uh, first guest who's uh, imam burhan uh, who is a missionary as well as a teacher in our um, university of uh, uh oriental studies is not oriental it's more like theological, theological um, yes. yeah um studies uh, jamia as well uh, a, a great scholar and an orator as well and he was speaking about the caliphate how important it is and how it can bind together not only those who follow the uh the promised messiah the the imam of the time um who was prophesied to come at the in the latter days and after him 
um, the caliphate started again in the same footsteps following and the footsteps of the, the caliphate at the time of the Holy Prophet, Prophet Muhammad, may peace and blessings of Allah be upon him. And as you mentioned very um, rightly, that there is a close um, association and the binding of the those who follow and the one who is being followed, and that is the imam. And the imam is the one who loves uh, the people who are his followers, who do who take an oath of allegiance at his hand, and they have a binding of love with each other. The Khalifa, he prays for them, he worries for them. And there are so many examples, and I, I would just like to mention uh, Hazrat Khalifa al-Masih III, Hazrat Mirza Nasir Ahmad, may Allah have mercy on him. He once explained how the binding of the hearts was a, really, a reality, manifested in the shape of Ahmadiyyat. In 1967, while he was in Denmark, a Christian priest asked uh, him what his status was in the Jamaat Ahmadiyya. And uh, Huzur, the, His Holiness, he replied by saying that his question was incorrect. He mentioned that the Imam of the Jamaat and the Jamaat itself are two names of the one and the same thing. The Khalifa of the time and the Jamaat itself both unify to become one entity. That is why it is the task of the Khilafat to strive to alleviate the pain and suffering of the Jamaat. Indeed, there is absolutely nothing as pure and sincere as the love that exists between Ahmadis and their Khalifa. It is a type of love that transcends tribal, ethnic, national, and political boundaries. It is a love that is in many respects no less than a miracle of God. You know, once uh, when Hazrat Khalifa al-Masih I was unwell and members of the Jamaat prayed fervent prayers for Hazur that truly reflected the pain and anguish that a child feels for his ailing mother. As companions of the Holy Prophet, peace be upon him, were prepared to shed their own blood before a drop of sweat appeared on the blessed face of their beloved master, peace be upon him. So two were Ahmadis ready to lay down their own lives for, for their Khalifa. And Sheikh Muhammad Hussain Saab prayed that, O oh Allah, I pray that all of Hazur's suffering be transferred to me instead and he may be relief of, of, from all of it. You know, Sayyid Idarat Hussain Saab replied, or sorry, prayed that, O oh Allah, I beg you, take two years away from my own life and grant them to Hazur instead. So the kind of love which the you know the, the Ahmadis have for the Khalifa is according to the verse which I've mentioned at the beginning. That God he himself binded, you know, the love he God has uh, you know inculcated the love for the Khalifa and Khalifa's love for, for the members of the for the Jamaat and the Ahmadi Muslims and we see the, the, the relationship in every single moment. We are living in an era where we are blessed with Khilafat, we know there's somebody who is close to Almighty Allah, who is the rope of Allah the Almighty. And if we hold that rope firmly, indeed we can be successful in this world and in the hereafter. There are many things we sometimes think that we know, but when we take guidance, he gives the guidance which you know, is different and is accurate and which is the time, the need of the time. You know, one can understand, you know, <clears throat> The Khalifa, the, the Khalifat or, you know, the Khalifa, it's, it's kind of, you know, glasses. You have the eye, you can read. But when you wear those glasses, you can read properly 
clearly and understand and that's what the khilafat is it shows you and guides you what is absolutely right for you and you know that's how uh, you know the, the people or the jamaat or the ahmadi muslims muslims love their khalifa and the khalifa loves them moving on uh, to you know the the second khalif of ahmadiyya muslim association hazrat muslim awud radhiyallahu uh, ta'ala anhu the, the the second khalif of ahmadiyya muslim association you know as a child cannot bear to be distanced from his mother and ahmadis also feel the pain of being away from their beloved when hazrat muslim awud embarked upon his tour of europe in 1924 babu sirajuddin saab station master expressed their feeling that ahmadis across the globe still resonate with even today he said that my beloved master we are far from you and are helpless if it was possible we would become the dust upon hazur's shoes so we would not have to endure the agony of separation very beautiful just look at look at the words what kind of how they used to feel they wanted to you know near the khalifa and this is one of the you know narrations is, is the listeners were listening especially the ahmadi listeners that's kind that kind of love we should have for the khalifa that kind of nearness we should have and that's that's kind of feeling we should have for the khalifa because you know again i would say we as you know the imam buran has mentioned um, buran has mentioned the beginning the importance you know if we are united under the uh, under the hand of khalifa indeed we will be you know successor successful at the end and it is only possible when we truly love him you know this as i mentioned this um, you know the the the, the generation of uh, uh, babu sajuddin was a station master you know this was merely a reflection of the muslim aud's razilatna love for members of jamaat because he loved them in 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 reply you know they had the same feeling they had the same love for uh, you know the, the the second khalif and you know as i mentioned hazur once said that you have someone who has truly sympathy for you who truly loves you who considers your pain and suffering to be his own and who is always praying to allah for you this is the you know blessing of khilafat they are there for us always praying for us you know the scope of our khalifa's prayers it encompasses all amdis hmm. in fact all the human beings hazrat hafiz mirza nasir ahmed who was the third caliph of the amni muslim community he once said that i often pray during the sajda that is the prostration position in the prayers and i pray that o oh god in respect of those who have written to me please relieve them of their anxiety sickness or worries about their examinations in respect of those who wanted to write to me but could not please shower thy mercy on them as well and please show mercy on those who become averse or lazy i say this prayer because i have a relationship with everyone and deep in my heart lies love and affection for all um a day before migrating to london in 1984 hazrat mirza tahir ahmed uh, may allah be have mercy on him he told the members of the jamaat in masjid mubarak in rabwa in pakistan as he ha- he was leaving he was going to leave soon he gathered them and he said to them i have not gathered you to address you with a formal speech i simply wished to see you for my eyes are cooled and my heart is comforted by seeing you 
By Allah, I love you more than a mother could love her own child. Our current Imam, the head of the Ahmadiyya Muslim community, Hazrat Mirza Masroor Ahmad Khalifatul Masih V, he has immense love for each and every one of us. In the Friday sermon of 6 June 2014, His Holiness said, Before sleeping at night, there is no country in the world that I do not visit in my imagination, and no Ahmadi for whom I do not pray while sleeping and whilst awake. One need only glance at the diaries of Abid Khan Saif, who is the press secretary, to get a glimpse of the mutual love and affection shared between Ahmadis and um, His Holiness uh, the Caliph. The importance of reading these diaries is apparent from the fact that during Huzur's, His Holiness's visit to Germany in 2015, a 16-year-old boy approached Abid Sahib, this press secretary of, uh, of His Holiness, and said to him that until he had learned about Huzur from the diaries, he did not love Khilafat in the way that an Ahmadi should. But having read them, he had seen just how much Huzur loved the Jamaat and why we needed the Khilafat. So there are so many examples, rather countless examples of mutual love to be discovered in these diaries that refreshes and revitalizes one's love for Khilafat. The family of Shuhada, the martyrs who received personal phone calls from His Holiness, give, giving them comfort in a way only a Khalifa could, children of the martyrs telling how they received Eidi, that is a present on the on Eid occasions, personally from His Holiness every year, his Holiness also personally looking after guests and visitors. He also embracing and consoling the family of Lajnam, of a Lajnam member of Ireland Jamaat who passed away from cancer. The elderly man, the elderly man from Ohio, USA, who said that the rest of the world was struggling and facing increasing difficulties, but Ahmadis constantly feel at ease due to the blessings of Khilafat. How carefully and lovingly Huzur takes care of each member of his entourage while on tour. Huzur visiting the homes of Jamia, Germany, professors, and commenting that when he was unable to visit them during his previous tour, he felt a burden in his heart for 18 months. Huzur, His Holiness, uh, his many expressions of humility that bring tears to the eyes, journalists who were amazed and touched by the devotion of Ahmadis to Khilafat, Huzur, on whom be, uh, may Allah be his helper, he continuing, the, he, he continuing to carry out his duties despite being in pain and discomfort, opting to rest in the car during a journey, and the list goes on and on and on. This love that both the Ahmadis and beloved Huzur expresses for each other are visible to everyone. Uh, indeed, I think there's no doubt, and especially if you we discuss, if we see, you know, the the, the caliph and the the day he spent, you know, I sometimes think that how is it possible for one person, for a person to do or spend a day like this, you know, waking up in the morning, offering tahajjud, prayer, and you know, remembering God Almighty and praying for all Ahmadis and for the Jamaat and the difficulties Jamaat is facing and for, uh, you know, spreading uh, this, the message of Islam to the corners of the world and then, you know, offering prayers, the Fajr prayers especially and then the, the, the work starts and 
receiving thousands of letters from in different parts of country. People are writing their difficulties, you know, uh, what's going on in their life. And he's applying to all of those. And there are meetings happening with the, uh, you know, the, the, the in charge of different countries. And then there's a prayers continues. Then he's meeting the, you know, members of Jamaat every single day. And, you know, the whole day is packed packed with so many things and you know one thing I sometimes uh, think myself and it's something you know uh, encourages me as well that you know I never seen him that he did not come for prayers even though he was ill very rarely but I think I can't really imagine or can't really you know think of any day where I did not see him or he's not leading the prayer because he was ill. You know, that's how the Holy Prophet, peace be upon him, used to do. Even though he was, you know, uh, he was very ill and he was, you know, very near to the demise, even then he went to to, to mosque to offer prayer. And that's what uh, I see from, you know, the, the example of the, the, the Hazur Agdas, uh, the, the head of Ahmadiyya Muslim Association, the Caliph, that he comes to lead prayer. And he is busy every single day. There's no day which he can take off a continuous work for, you know, two decades and still doing it at the age of, you know, 75. And even though it's a lot of burden, but God has given him the ability to, to take the older burden and he's keep going. And indeed, you know, it's all kind of strength comes from God Almighty. And he is a role model the way he, you know, uh, sacrificing his day and night, spending day and night for us, you know, to to to, to uh, spread the, the, this uh, message to the corners of the world, and the way he meets in the evening, even though he's tiring the day, even then he's smiling all the time, and he is the role model. He is the man of God we have within us, and we have to, you know, have a. Uh, living relationship with him, we have to write him. We should, you know, get seek. Uh, you know, uh, if we need any help in any regard, we should seek help of him. And you know, he guides on every single step. People who ask him, and there's so many things we see in our daily life. We are struggling. We are facing so many difficulties. How to live our life? We are not regular in in in, in prayers, and how to be near to God Almighty. These all are the things which we can write to him and seek guidance. And to be near to God Almighty is important. And I think it's very fundamental that we should have a love of Khalifatul Masih, the Khalifa of the time within our heart, because he is the man of God. And if, you know, the man of God, we, 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 we are not near to him, indeed we cannot be near to God Almighty, because he is the source who guides us and who shows the way and path towards Allah the Almighty. So it's important to follow uh, you know, the, 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 the man of God we have within us and, uh, you know, be near to him, keep writing to him, pray for him as he prays for us and we should have the same love and, uh, you know, uh, care for him as he care for us. So now we're going to go <clears throat> to one of the documentary explaining the Khilafat further and then uh, what is Khilafat and then we'll be back after that and we will discuss and continue the show. Please listen to this documentary and we'll join back after that. 
Far from the pockets of war-torn Syria and Iraq, where ISIS attempts to enforce their regime of terror, in the leafy suburbs of London, the real Khalifa leads the faithful in prayer. His melodious voice reminds his followers that in a world of chaos and turmoil, there is peace and hope to be found in the true teachings of Islam. He leads his followers through this time of great scepticism towards Islam with an indiscriminate message of love, tolerance and justice for all. All values that he so perfectly personifies. He reminds us that prayer is our only weapon. This is the true definition of a Khalifa, one who calls the faithful to prayer and the remembrance of Allah and leads us all united towards peace. Until recently, the word Khalifa was mainly heard in connection with historic events, like the era of the Moors in Spain or the Ottoman Empire. These days, however, the word Khalifa is most likely to be associated with the terror group ISIS and their self-appointed leader Abu Bakr al-Baghdadi. There is a growing concern amongst many non-Muslims about the ambitions of a Khalifa of Islam and the implications for the rest of the world. Many fear that a Khalifa of Islam's ultimate ambition would be to forcibly impose Sharia law across the world and proceed with an international campaign of terror, violence and destruction. For ten good years, the Holy Prophet of Islam was persecuted in Mecca. He never reacted, never retaliated. Then, because of the conditions there, he, he migrated to Medina. And there, after almost one or one and a half year, the infidels of Mecca attacked him. Then, there was a, there's a verse in the Holy Quran that now you are given permission to fight back. And why? The next verse says, because if you did not stop them from fighting or killing you now, they will try to finish the religions of, of the world. And it says, it is mentioned in the Quran, that if you did not step on now, they will not only demolish or destroy your mosque, they will not leave any church, any synagogue, any temple or any place of worship intact. So it means when the permission of war was given to the Muslims, it was to save the religion, to save all the religions of the world, to save Christianity, to save Judaism, to save other religions. For 1400 years, the old sacred buildings of other religions, even Abrahamic religion was safe there in, in those areas. Even during the time of Holy Prophet and his fall, rightly guided caliphs and then if, after that these buildings were not destroyed and now they have just ruined all the, those historical places there now by ISIS. So it is not good. Had it been in the Quran or it was the teaching of, of Islam, it should have been destroyed earlier than this. Those people were more pious and had more power than these people. In order to understand Islamic thinking on the concept of Khilafat, we need to go back to the Holy Qur'an and see how the role is defined. The actual word Khilafat means succession. 
The Holy Quran explains that a Khalifa is a person without any political ambitions or desires and one who believes entirely in a separation of religion and matters of state. Allah states in the Holy Quran, Allah had promised to those among you who believe and do good works that he will surely make them successors in the earth, as he had made successors from among those who were before them, and that he will surely establish for them their religion which he has chosen for them, and that he will surely give them in exchange security and peace after their fear. They will worship me, and they will not associate anything with me. Then whoso is ungrateful after that, they will be the rebellious. This verse also makes abundantly clear that it is Allah alone who appoints a Khalifa. The community of followers of a Prophet of Allah continues to nurture its faith and practices under the blessings of the institution of Khilafat for as long as Allah wishes. So how did Khilafat in Islam start? To understand this, we need to go back to the period following the death of the Holy Prophet Muhammad, peace and blessings be upon him. Hazrat Abu Bakr was appointed as his first successor and Khalifa. His Khilafat lasted only a little over two years and successfully maintained unity amongst the early Muslims after the passing of the Prophet. After him, the Prophet's second successor, Hazrat Umar, was appointed as the second Khalifa. He was able to establish an effective system of Islamic administration and governance. The Prophet's third successor, Hazrat Usman, oversaw the reproduction and propagation of the Holy Qur'an throughout the Muslim state. During his Khilafat, Hazrat Usman spent much of his personal wealth for furthering the cause of Islam. Hazrat Ali was the fourth appointed Khalifa, who sought to establish peace after Hazrat Usman's assassination. These first four successors of the Holy Prophet Muhammad, peace and blessings be upon him, are known as the Guided Khilafat. It was the Holy Prophet Muhammad, peace and blessings be upon him himself, who had foretold what would happen in regards to successorship. He states that prophethood shall remain among you as long as Allah shall will. He will bring about its end and follow it with Khilafat on the precepts of prophethood for as long as he shall will and then bring about its end. A tyrannical monarchy will then follow and will remain as long as Allah shall will and then come to an end. There will follow thereafter monarchical despotism to last as long as Allah shall will and then come to an end upon his decree. There will then emerge Khilafat on precept of prophethood. The people think that all what is happening in the world today, just uh, restlessness, uh, extremism, fires, this and that, is all happening because of Muslims or Islam, whereas it is not true. So according to my belief, the true teaching of Islam is quite different from that of what is being shown today or portrayed today by majority of the Muslims or majority of those people who claim themselves to be the leaders of the Muslim community. But when I reflect on this, my faith rather increases. Why? Because it was foretold by the Prophet of Islam that the time would come when his Ummah, his people, Muslims will will go astray. They will leave the true teaching of Islam. 
and at that time the reformer of the age will come and whom he entitled Mahdi, the guided one, and the Messiah, as the Messiah came 1,400 years after Moses. And he will reform and revive the true Islam. So we believe that that person has come and that prophecy has been fulfilled even without even having seen other signs. This is the big sign you are seeing today at how the Muslim community is behaving. In 1889, an extraordinary claim was made by Mirza Ghulam Ahmed of Qadian, India, the founder of the Ahmadiyya Muslim community. He claimed to be the promised Messiah and Mahdi, and he claimed to be the metaphorical second coming of Jesus of Nazareth and the divine guide whose advent was foretold by the Prophet of Islam, Muhammad, peace and blessings be upon him. Thus, in 1889, the seed of the prophesied Renaissance of Islam was sown by the promised Messiah, who, before his passing in 1908, established a system of Khilafat. He explained that this Khilafat was a divine institution, whereby the community was to be cared for by an appointed individual. After his death, the first Khalifa of Ahmadiyyat was appointed, Hazrat Nuruddin. <laughs> had such a high stature that um, nobody could propose any other name for Khilafat. Today, this successorship of the promised Messiah, the institution of Khilafat the Ahmadiyya, is in its 108th year. The Ahmadiyya Muslim community is currently being led by its fifth Khalifa, Mirza Masroor Ahmad, who was born on the 15th of September 1950 in Rabwa, Pakistan. In 1977, a 27-year-old Mirza Masroor Ahmed completed his master's degree in agricultural economics in Faisalabad, Pakistan, and formally dedicated his life to the service of Islam. From 1977 to 1985, Mirza Masroor Ahmed served in Ghana, engaged in social, educational and agricultural development projects. He is accredited with successfully growing wheat on Ghanaian soil for the first time in the nation's history. Upon returning to Pakistan in 1985, the following 18 years of Mirza Masroor Ahmed's life were spent serving in various senior administrative posts within the Ahmadiyya Muslim community. He served as chief executive of the community in Pakistan from 1977 until the evening of the 22nd of April 2003, when his life was changed forever. With the death of the fourth Khalifa, Hazrat Mirza Tahir Ahmed, Ahmadis gathered from around the world to elect their fifth Khalifa. On the evening of the 22nd of April 2003, Mirza Masroor Ahmed became the fifth Khalifa of the Ahmadiyya Muslim community. Ashhadu Allah ilaha illallah wahdahu la sharika lahu aaj main aaj main masroor ke haath par masroor ke haath par bait karke bait karke jamaat ahmadiyya jamaat ahmadiyya muslima mein muslima mein dakhil hota hu his Holiness Mirza Masroor Ahmed resides in London, in the city's first ever purpose-built mosque.
His followers number in the tens of millions, spread across more than 200 countries, making him the leader of the largest single group of Muslims in the world who follow one imam. Since being elected Khalifa, he has tirelessly led a worldwide mission to uphold the true values of Islam and unite humanity. He has also had to guide the community through a time of great global scepticism and animosity towards Islam. So, tolerance. Islam teaches tolerance. Ahmadis are not preaching anything other than what is given in the Holy Quran. And that is the message of peace, to respect each other. We believe that according to the Holy Quran, to do jihad is good thing. But what type of jihad? The, the, the best type of jihad is to reform your inner self first. Then to spread the message of love and peace and harmony. This type of jihad which is considered jihad in the present day is jihad of sword and extremism is not a jihad. This is the last type of jihad if, with the condition that if Muslims are attacked as a Muslim and they are stopped to practice their religion. I can give you this assurance that any good Ahmadi who is a practicing Ahmadi Muslim will never ever think of going to jihad in this way. His jihad is to first reform himself and then to preach the true teaching of Islam. We thank you Allah, we thank you Allah for giving us Hilafat. We thank you Allah, thank you, we thank you Allah, thank you, we thank you Allah for giving us Hilafat. We praise you Allah. We praise you, Allah. We praise you, Allah. Mirza Masroor's many international tours and countless campaigns and initiatives have received worldwide media coverage and demonstrate that Islam champions peace, loyalty to one's country of residence, and service to humanity. Mirza Masroor Ahmed travels the world regularly, meeting presidents, prime ministers, other heads of state and parliamentarians to deliver a message advocating the establishment of universal human rights and a just society. To, to remove the doubts and the hatred of each other, all the religions should sit together and just tell the beauties of their religion instead of accusing and blame, blaming each other. If these interfaith dialogues are done in this way, then it is useful for creating the peace in the world. In 2012, both the United States Congress and the European Parliament benefited directly from His Holiness's message of peace, justice and unity. On the 27th of June 2012, Hazrat Mirza Masroor Ahmed was welcomed to Capitol Hill in Washington, D.C., where he delivered a keynote address entitled The Path to Peace, Just Relations Between Nations, to an audience filled with more than 30 members of the United States Congress. In conjunction with his historic event, a bipartisan resolution was introduced in the House of Representatives in honour of His Holiness's visit. Addressing the congressman and other esteemed guests, His Holiness stated, What does Islam say in relation to international relations that are based on justice and so a means of establishing peace? 
the Holy Quran, God Almighty has made it clear that whilst our nationalities or ethnic backgrounds act as a means of identity, they do not entitle or validate any form of superiority of any kind. The Quran thus makes clear that all people are born equal. Furthermore, in final, final sermon ever delivered by the Holy Prophet Muhammad sallallahu peace and blessing of Allah be upon him, he instructed all Muslims to always remember that an Arab is not superior to a non-Arab, and nor is a non-Arab superior to an Arab. And he taught that a white person is not superior to a black person, and nor is a black person superior to a white person. Thus, it is clear teaching of Islam that the people of all nationalities and all races are equal. It is also made clear that all people should be granted equal rights without any discrimination or prejudice. This is the key and golden principle that lays the foundation for harmony between different groups and nations and for the establishment of peace. On the 4th December 2012, His Holiness delivered another historic keynote address, this time at the European Parliament in Brussels, to a packed audience of more than 350 guests representing 30 countries, including the President of the European Parliament. During his 35-minute address, His Holiness called on the European Union to preserve its unity and called for equality and justice in international relations. For countries, to advance in science or to excel in other fields of expertise requires them to cooperate and help each other. We should always remember that the people of the world, whether they are from Africa, Europe, Asia, or anywhere else, have been given great intellectual capabilities by Allah the Almighty. If all parties utilize their God-given faculties to the best of their abilities for the betterment of mankind, then we will find that the world will become a heaven of peace. However, if the developed nations try to suppress the growth and progress of the less developed or developing nations and do not give opportunities to the fertile and bright minds of those nations, then no doubt anxiety will spread and the ensuing restlessness will ruin international peace and security. Let it be clear that I am not speaking in support or favor of any particular individual country. What I wish to say is that all forms, forms of cruelty, wherever they exist, must be eradicated and stopped. On the 11th of February 2014, His Holiness delivered the keynote address at the Conference of World Religions held at the Guildhall in London. During his address, His Holiness outlined Islam's commitment to promoting mutual understanding, tolerance and respect based on the teachings of the Holy Quran and the life of the Holy Prophet Muhammad, peace and blessings be upon him.
He's a very peaceful man and, and he makes people feel very comfortable and at ease. His approach is perfect. It's very peaceful, it's very loving. He's a very serene person. When you're with him, you feel um, this, this peace. And, and I think when people meet him and he talks about his message, that we will um, understand that communities that are different, um, and we have many communities in London where I'm from, that are very different, that they can be together and that they have much to learn from each other and share. Mirza Masroor Ahmed has also travelled globally to promote and facilitate service to humanity. His Holiness takes a particular interest in alleviating the suffering of developing nations by helping to improve their agriculture and facilitating access to food, clean water and electricity. He oversees the work of the International Association of Ahmadi Architects and an organisation briefed with leading various humanitarian and development projects in remote areas of the world. The scope and expertise of this organisation has grown at a rapid rate under his leadership. Likewise, His Holiness supports the work of Humanity First, an international non-profit disaster relief and development charity and other such organisations. Under the leadership of Islamic Khilafat, the Ahmadiyya Muslim community has now built over 30 hospitals and over 500 schools. You believe in peace, loyalty. You want to bring that to um, all countries. Actually, that's a main message for you. Is it hard nowadays to bring peace to people, to explain uh, what you're here for? Yes, of course it is hard. But uh, if we are determined that we have to spread this message all across the world and we, we should not give up, then despite the fact that it is hard, we have to do it. When Khilafat exists on the precepts of justice, consideration for the rights of others, and overall a deep will for peace as defined by the Holy Quran and the Prophet himself, and summarized perfectly by this community's motto of love for all, hatred for none, then Khilafat has the ability to serve as a grand force in the world. This is not a Khilafat to be feared by non-Muslims, but rather it is the only one that can unite the Muslim world in this time of chaos where Muslim is fighting Muslim. This is a Khilafat based on peace, wisdom and compassion. This is the true and only Khilafat. The Holy Prophet foretold of a Prophet, one which would be the second coming of Jesus Christ, a Mahdi, a reformer, who would revive Islam and lead it forward into a new era of success. The Holy Prophet requested his companions to convey his salam to this reformer of the new age. He said, when you hear the advent of the Mahdi, then enter into his fold, even if you have to walk on snow by crawling and creeping to reach him. The role and sole purpose of this subordinate prophet was made clear. He would revive Islam, unite all its sects, and establish a caliphate which would strengthen Islam and lead it forward into a new age. I give you the glad tidings of Mahdi, 
who will be raised in my Ummah at a time of digression and distress of people. He will fill the earth with equity and justice as it is filled with oppression and violence. But how could this promised man recognize that he was the one? It could only be through a revelation from God and this revelation was received by the noble and humble Hazrat Mirza Ghulam Ahmad in 1891 in the small town of Qadian to the east of Damascus. It is now the duty of every Muslim to come forward and accomplish the appeal of the Holy Prophet to join in to the fold of this Prophet, Hazrat Mirza Ghulam Ahmad the Reformer, the Mahdi, the Promised Messiah. I call to witness God Almighty who holds my life in His hand, that compared to every other soul, He has gifted me with overwhelmingly greater ability and access to the understanding and the deeper wisdom of the Holy Quran. If any of the Maulvis who oppose me in response to my repeated invitations had attempted to outshine me in the exposition of the Holy Quran, God would have most certainly frustrated his attempts and exposed his ignorance. Hence, the understanding of the Quran which has been granted me is a sign of Allah, the Glorious, and I have full trust in Allah's grace that soon the world will begin to see that I am true in this claim. Persecuted for your beliefs, jailed for your faith, and exiled from your homeland, but you refuse to turn to bitterness or vengeance. Instead, His Holiness has emerged as a leader of wisdom and compassion, a champion of nonviolence among nations. No society can truly succeed unless it guarantees the rights of all of its peoples, including religious minorities. Whether they're Ahmadiyya, Muslims in Pakistan, or Baha'i in Iran, or Coptic Christians in Egypt. I would like very much to confirm my support for the work that His Holiness and the Ahmadi Muslim community are doing, particularly in London. Even I didn't know when I was elected, then my name even will be proposed. The election is the same as the Pope is elected, but without smoke. Welcome back after the, uh, you have listened to the documentary and uh, you have heard that how, you know, the Khalifat has been chosen and how the Khalifat is working day and night. And you have uh, truly, uh, you definitely uh, benefited from the documentary you've heard. At the end, I would like to present a French-speaking journalist from Benin once said to Hazur, while I have been here at uh, the Jalsa Annual Convention, that I've seen that your people love you very much. They do not worship you, but their hearts are overflowing with love for the Khalifa. And in the same way, it seems that you sincerely love each and every Ahmadi and you have personal relationship with them. In a blood, Hazur said this is a sign of truth of Ahmadiyyat, whereby there is an everlasting spiritual bond of love between the Khalifa and the Ahmadis. This connection and attachment is natural and has been implanted in the hearts of Ahmadi Muslims by Allah the Almighty. It is continuation of the two-way love that exists between the Holy Prophet of Islam and his companions. So may Allah, you know, continue to shower the Jamaat uh, you know, the, the, with the blessings of Khilafat, and may he pour down the showers of his grace and mercy on the Khilafat of our beloved Imam Ayyadullah Ta'ala bin Aziz. Amin, sum amin. 
Now I would like to thank the presenter of today's show and the technical team working behind the scenes. Thank you very much and thank you for the listener who are listening with us or were with us today. Until next time, Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa